Did you know that Theology in the Raw has merch? Uh, we have shirts, hats, hoodies, crewnecks, and other cool products. Uh, I've never mentioned this before because up until now, Theology in the Raw has only sold merch at our Exiles in Babylon conference. But now, uh, we just now opened up an online store, so we're having a flash sale on all of our merch while supplies uh, last. You can go to the store link below in the show notes, or you can go to theologyintheraw.com and click on the merch tab. There is free shipping on all the orders, and the sale ends September 7th. And if you ordered at least two items, you will get a free Think Deeply, Love Widely tote bag while supplies last. Our stock is limited, so if you want any Theology Neural merch, you need to order it very soon before it runs out. So again, click on the sh- uh, link in the show notes below, or you can go to theologyintheraw.com and click on the merch tab. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Raw. It is my great pleasure to have my very good friend and mentor, um, Bill Henson, back on the show. Uh, Bill has been engaging the LGBTQ conversation for many, many years, has, I would say, more experience than anybody I've ever met. I mean, he's trained literally thousands of Christian leaders, has has worked with thousands of, of Christian families who have LGBT kids. He focuses on... Uh, how to create a place in churches, in our families, in our homes that are, are safe and life-giving for uh, LGBTQ people um, within uh, a traditional sexual ethic. And um, he just, he's so incredibly wise, has so much knowledge um, that I'm excited to have him back on the show. So uh, in, this, in this podcast, we do focus on Christian parents of LGBTQ kids. And I think Bill just has an immense amount of wealth and wisdom in that area. Also, I'd invite you to check out um, a resource that he has produced called Guiding Families. It's now in the fifth edition, and this is my absolute go-to resource. Um, it's, it, whether you're you're a, a parent with an LGBT kid or maybe a pastor trying to navigate, especially r- real nitty-gritty pastoral relational questions um, within your churches, uh, Guiding Families is an absolute essential resource. Uh, I, uh, you can find it, if you just Google it, I think guidingfamilies.com, or if you go to postureshift.com uh, is the website where uh, of the ministry that Bill um, is uh, is in charge of, Posture Shift Ministries. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Bill Henson. Bill, I would not be thinking through this conversation the way I do without uh, your incredible wisdom. So thank you for what you do and for our friendship. Thank you, Preston. I feel the same. Thank you very much for your friendship. I was thinking about, I think we first connected in like 2009, something like that. Yeah, that so a, while a long time. Was it through Leslie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. Shout out to Leslie. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Amazing human being. Well, for those who don't know who you are or your organization, just give us a just a kind of a one-on-one. Uh, I know I think a lot of people will will be familiar with your work. Um, we get a lot of crossover. I mean, I yeah, I can't tell you how many times people that follow my podcast, or whatever, will also mention you and and the and the work you've done. But for those who don't know, who is Bill Henson and what do, what do you do? Sure. Uh, I, I'm married to my wife Kong. We have two kids, 22 and 19, all grown up now. Founded Posture Shift in 2006. Uh, it was uh, founded to be a training platform for church leaders. Uh, just like you've found Preston quickly, parents are coming to us. And over the years, kind of built up two brands, Posture Shift for training church teams, mm-hmm. guiding families for helping parents and families of LGBT loved ones. 
so that they that used to be kind of one and the same. Well, when did you right? I mean, can you explain the 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 division then? Um, that division sounds harsh, but yeah, I'd say the umbrella is we are Posture Shift Ministries Inc. And then under that, we have two platforms: uh, okay. one for pa- church teams, church and ministry teams, and ones one for parents and families. So I just see it as two brands within one organization. How many families have you worked with over the years? Um, I mean, you've been doing this for almost two decades, right? And yes. so many families. What what yeah. number is it? There's, it's really hard to say. There's different categories, like seeing a kid and their mom and dad in person, like every two weeks for years, I would say it's in the hundreds. Um, engaging parents and their kid through Zoom or over a telephone call, maybe once or twice, it could be thousands and thousands. Wow. And then there's about 50,000 copies of the various editions of Guiding Families in print. So it's designed as a care plan, uh, as a best practice care plan. So in a sense, there's a lot of families that are getting what they would get through our direct care by reading okay. the book. Can you can you hold it up? And I want to tell people where they yes. can get it. Because this is the, if I had one resource to give to families or church leaders or anybody engaged in this conversation, this is absolutely incredible. Um, yeah. Guiding yep. families. It's it's now in the fifth edition. It used to be a lot shorter, right? Like 40, 50 pages, and now it keeps yeah. expanding. Yeah, it's the fifth edition is about double the content of our prior expanded okay. edition. And it's available at either guidingfamilies.com or postureshift.com. That's my my first piece of advice. If parents are like, my kid just came out, what do I do? It's my first is like, okay, read this and then you know, call me in the morning kind of thing, you know, like it <laughs> yeah. just, uh, it, it just has a wealth of just, I mean, amazing, not just information, well, information, good information, but drawn from so much experience and people's stories. And um, yeah, it's just absolutely incredible. Um, I, we, we spoke offline and, you know, when I, when I first started engaging the conversation, it was kind of as a theologian, you know, I was doing a lot of theology and then it quickly turned into theological pastoral care, you know, kind of combining more like helping pastors navigate a lot of the nitty gritty relational questions over the last few years. Um, we, uh, as an organization are just inundated with Christian parents with LGBT kids. And I, this is something that I, in a sense, I didn't like sign up for, but I've had to like say, Oh my gosh, this is a huge need. Uh, but man, I have leaned so much on you and your work and, and other Christian parents who have, you know, walked this road for a while and, and have great stuff to say. Let's just start with Christian parents of LGBTQ kids. I know that's a broad, broad category. Every story is different, but are there some big picture things that you would tell parents listening, watching right now, whose kid maybe just came out or maybe they've been out for 10, 20 years, you know, are there some just real big picture stuff that you would tell every parent to start with? Yeah. I, I'd say the number one principle is when a child comes out, no matter what age they are, there's a tendency for suddenly us as parents to project our needs upon our child. Uh, In other words, you have given me information that has now triggered me or shocked me or disappointed me or hurt me. This is not what I expected. So instead of coming at a posture of really, really being engaged and listening to the self-report of our child, 
we're often reporting our story upon our child. So we're, in a sense, we're inflicting our grief upon our child. So the number one principle would be to have that self-awareness of, whoa, let me make sure that I get my support to process my stuff with other people separate from my child. But right here, right now, I need to be present for my child in what they are self-reporting to me. I think that's the number one, number one principle is that that presence of actually being listening rather than hearing something and then spilling, you know, a bunch of fears or a bunch of trying to create a whole trajectory of the a future for the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, wait, wait, no, my child has just told me something and I need to be present in this moment. I think that's the top yeah. principle. Now, I, I would imagine, I w- I'm going to guess, almost every parent listening who has an LGBT kid is going to say, I didn't do that. <laughs> like, like if, if you're, I mean, how many parents do you know, like, prepare for the time in case their kid might, you know, it's just not something parents do. So yeah. th- there's basically little to no preparation ahead of time, yeah. right? So most parents are probably backtracking. Um, is it, if, they, if, 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 a parent has maybe not done that well. Maybe there was a freak out, maybe tears, maybe this guilt of what did I do wrong? Or, or even like, why are you doing this to us? I mean, that could, I mean, I've, I've heard, I've heard it all. You have too. What can they do? Can, can they go back and redeem that moment? What they, what can they do if they've made some mistakes along the way? Yeah. So, uh, one mistakes are very, very costly. So, uh, let's just say that, Anyone with a minority experience, they experience marginalization at a very high rate. So when something that feels like marginalization is coming from my own mom and dad, whoa, oh no, now it's not just bullying, teasing things I might encounter on the outside or people I don't really know well at church who are thinking ugly thoughts about me. But all of a sudden, whoa, now I'm dealing with that same, what feels to me like mistreatment from my own mom and dad. So mistakes are very costly. Uh, it'll take a lot to overcome the mistakes. In Guiding Families, uh, in prior editions, we actually wrote how to write a reset letter. Really? And the reset letter is an opportunity to confess, in a sense, mistakes, even sins that I've committed against my child, to not just verbally tell them that. I may, I may do that as well, but to put it in writing. Like if I'm a dad that has hardly ever written a letter to my own children, Mm. because we live together and we love each other and all that, you know, uh, well, put it in writing, handwriting, you know, and a reset letter could powerfully reach into the heart of a hurt kid and convince that kid to forgive and to give mom and dad another uh, shot. Um, Now, but this is how hard it is in 2023. Uh, we went to some of our, let's say, most trusted parents, and we just said, hey, tell us about some of your successes of, you know, when you wrote a reset letter and, you know, how it uh, helped to repair your relationship. And all of a sudden, this one mom and dad said, oh, well, your book is entirely missing a whole uh, article. I was like, really? What is it? <laughs> when a reset letter doesn't work. Oh. And Preston, that article ends up being, they helped us co-write it, uh, and it ends up being one of the most powerful articles in the whole fifth edition. So that's just to say that, like, it can be so costly 
that there can be kids, even adult kids that like are not ready to forgive mom and dad for some of those mistakes that they've made. In 2023, there are kids that are saying, your traditional view is white supremacy to me. So when you can put it in writing that you no longer have a traditional view, then we can have a relationship. Until then, no relationship. Whoa. Have you seen that? That, that was that viewpoint. That was my next question. Um, how? Because this is probably the most challenging question I get, and I don't know how to answer it. And maybe there's not a, you know, magic bullet answer, but I get all the time, and it seems to be increasing. My my child or my friend, it could be just a relational, demands 100% agreement until I can give that. Any kind of verbalization of love is just a charade. You are either toxic or you 100% agree with me. Those are the two options. Has that viewpoint been increasing? And yes. what do you what advice do you give? I'm so excited to hear you speaking to this. Yeah, it's uh it's increasing. And but what I would say is. I think it's more a symptom of a highly, highly divisive culture that we live yeah. in. I, I, in other words, the it's it's it has nothing to do with a particular family or the history of that family, assuming there's love in that family. It has to do with ideologies. And there's an ideology that that like if you vote this way, then you can't be my friend. Uh, if you use this word and not that word, then we're, you're no friend of mine or you don't love. All right. So like not to be um, uh, sarcastic in any way, but it's so prevalent that I actually went to ja uh, chat GPT to ask the question, does love require unity and belief? Now, biblically, I already know the answer. Love transcends uh, differences in belief. Love transcends sin. Love transcends all the different kinds of divisions that we might have in our relationships. But I wanted to see on a secular platform, what would the answer be? And even AI says, no, it would be a torturesome definition of love that it would be based upon a unity and belief across all the important issues in life. Love must transcend differences really? in view or else it is not a true definition of love. And I was very encouraged by that because obviously there's someone programming AI and there was some recognition at purely a secular level outside of Christianity or any religion at all that love must transcend differences in belief. Ah, but it will be measured by honoring actions, attitudes, and words. So as long as there's honoring, then there's a possibility for people to perceive that they are loved. If there's if there's ugly attitudes, uh, horrible actions, uh, disrespectful words, then clearly we're not being loving, and therefore that love can't transcend that gap. Well, that's what I was thinking. Could it be? And and. Again, we're talking 30,000 foot level. Every individual case is different. But like, have you encountered parents that think they are actually being as loving as they can, but they're actually doing things, maybe often unintentional, that it isn't that they can actually improve on to genuinely be loving their kid better? Yes. And it goes across the whole spectrum. Parents that yeah. think they're being loving, but I'm even listening to what they're saying. And I'm like, yeah. uh, that's not going <laughs> to. 
Uh, that's not going to translate, you know, and then I meet parents that are doing everything right, but yeah. their kids will not internalize that or accept it. So can you give um, examples of being the parents thinking they're being loving, but yeah, doing things again, unintentionally that are not loving? Yeah. A dad who's even like the demeanor is like very calm. Like mm. you can just sense this dad loves his son. You know, he's saying, I love my son. I, you know, I do anything for my son, um, but I just didn't raise my boy to be in the gay lifestyle. Okay, wait. No, the moment that we uh, take your son's self-reported identity and now we assign to it all kinds of negative lifestyle, we're, we're actually communicating condemnation to our child. And the father's like, well, what did I say? I just, mm. my kid came out. All I did is share with you that my kid came out. I said, well, but what does gay lifestyle mean to you? It means my son is gay. Okay, well, what does gay lifestyle mean to your son? I don't know. Mm, well, maybe you should ask him, no you know, because I bet he's going to say that it, it makes it feel like you're saying to me, dad, that I'm like involved in all this uh ugly sexual activity and that I don't have a conscience and that I don't have integrity and things like this. So when we reduce what people are reporting to the, to us about their identity and using language that means something to them, we've got to understand we're responsible for that. That's not their fault. That's our responsibility. So that's an example. So, so a big part of it is using language in a way that you don't realize is maybe communicating things that maybe you're not even intending, or maybe, maybe you are intending and maybe you don't realize that this idea, this assumption can be really off-putting. Can you give it, uh, is there another example that comes to mind of again, unintentional miscommunication of love? Yes. There'll be parents that like, they have an older son who is allowed to date at age uh, 16. Um, but they'll have, a. Uh, a, a lesbian daughter that is not allowed to date, but it's not an age threshold thing, or it's not a no dating in our household thing. It's your brother can date because he's heterosexual. How could we ever allow you to date when you're, 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 you're you have a lesbian identity? All right. So now I'm not saying parents have to allow dating, but I'm saying is that if you have an inconsistent policy in how you allow sleepovers or how you allow friends to visit, or what friends you allow your kids to hang out with, or dating. If you have an inconsistency in policy, you think you're protecting your child, but all they're seeing is the disconnect between the permissions that their siblings have versus the restrictions they face. And that's going to feel to them like marginalization. They are being treated differently. So that's another example. And by the way, by very loving parents. No, yeah. How do you, because I do have a question about that. Like, would it be, because I've, I've thought about this, like, even with, you know, well, my kids are all straight, you know, and, and, but yeah. even then they're different dating. Like, we've had to navigate just different, like, yeah. man, what, 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 you know, what we said to this one daughter who might say, well, for you, because of various things, it might look yes. different. And, and maybe we're, and every day we go back to the drawing board of parenting. I, I don't know how people have a full time job and <laughs> parent. Parenting is like a two full-time jobs and I'm also supposed to go to work all day. And like, it's just, it's insane. But, and we're um, only talking about that as dads. Imagine how moms feel. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my gosh. So, so 
would it be okay? And this is actually a genuine, like for me, I'm like, we have one kind of standard for dating. Like if you say you're a Christian and, and, you know, then we're going to hold you to a Christian standard. So if my Christian who's, yeah, let's just say, yeah, 16, like they're still under authority. I think once they're 18 and over that that relationship kind of changes. But if our kid who says I'm a Christian, but I want to date, say a non-Christian, I would say, I don't, here's why I don't think that would be wise. Or even the, even if the guy was a Christian, but it's like, Oh gosh, I'm seeing major red flags here. We would say, no, we like, we do have to still approve of what we think is a wise Christian standard of dating. So if we did that and say we had a lesbian or gay kid who said, well, I want to date the same sex. I say I'm a Christian. Wouldn't, would it be okay to say, well, that actually falls outside the bounds of what we think would be a wise Christian form yes. of dating or I'm, I don't want people to come away from this podcast saying Bill Henson said, you must allow your child to date. Okay. <laughs> but what I don't want to sweep under the rug is the impact that that has on LGBT kids. So if parents have that standard for dating, uh, it could still be applied in an in, in an inconsistent way. Okay. For example, you know, maybe the red flags aren't so apparent <laughs> that their heterosexual kid is actually dating someone that is really, really not actually walking with Christ right now. You know, and and maybe we're aware of pieces of that, but like kind of let it pass. Why? Oh, because he's such a wonderful young man, you know, and oh, they look so cute together and, you know, and they're having fun. Okay. So my point is there tends to be this idea that we communicate a consistent policy, but then we don't implement it so consistently. Um, I think another aspect of this question is like, if I am going to strictly say to my gay son or my lesbian daughter or my pansexual child, you know, if I'm going to say, you know, like, look, because you're not capable of dating in an opposite sex relationship that would be consistent with our biblical beliefs, therefore, you can't date until you're 18. I think we need to really, really consider, like, how can we be consistent with our other kids in in that manner, number one. But also, you know, we talk about this in posture for church leaders, for every no you know, you need to have three to five yeses that you can say yes to. So like, if you're going to say no to dating and your child is going to absorb as victimization, the idea that they are being treated differently, we can talk all day long about how, no, they're not being treated differently because it's a Christian view of marriage and dating. I understand that theologically, but at a relational level, there's no way that child is not going to absorb that internalize it as a as a they are being mistreated they are being treated differently than their siblings so every for every way in which we might treat lgbt kids differently we need to really be creative in thinking about what are three to five things that i can say yes to you know like if i'm a pastor and if i can't officiate a gay marriage then uh, that's saying no to someone on the biggest day of their life. By the way, I won't officiate a gay marriage. So let me make sure I'm being very clear here. But just saying in light of that, it's my responsibility to be thinking very creatively, how can I make this a church home for LGBT people? 
But I'm going to say no on the biggest day of their life. I better have five things I can invite mm. them into now. So parents, I'd say the same thing. Be thinking creatively about what you can say yes to. That's I'm not really saying crazy. yes to sin. I'm talking about yes to like, you know, uh, engaging your child based on mm. how they understand their identity. That's so good. Bill, I remember that you, that's a, you reminded me. I remember hearing, hearing you say that years ago, um, for every no, you should have a, a, a number of yeses. Um, and, and I do, I, I like you add the clarification. You're not saying yes to sin, but there could be some gray area issues that you might not be super excited about, but I'm hearing you say, given the unique challenges that this relationship is going to have, you, you might have to make some can I say, I don't know what words you're about, but maybe accommodations. Like this wouldn't yeah. be my preference, but if I look at the long-term picture, the you know, long-term picture, I, I want to do whatever I can to maintain a relationship here. And there's already gonna be things stacked against the, you know, the, the deck kind of stacked against this. And so maybe making some accommodations to preserve the relationship. Is that okay? Yes, and maybe also to protect my child emotionally. For example, if my child is old, an older 16-year-old or almost 17-year-old, 17-year-old, or if they're in their senior year, okay, am I going to say no, 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 no to dating? And then when they go off to college, they literally fall off a cliff where for the first time in their life, they are now making dating decisions on their own outside of my household without any of my insight or influence or, or oversight. So like there, surely there has to be this kind of letting go. Do we want the letting go to be this binary on off switch when a kid is 18 yeah. and out of our house? Or do we want to be able to say, well, Okay, you're 17 now and you want to date. Um, okay, we're going to allow you to make that decision on your own. We don't support it, but we're allowing you to make your own decision. At least it would give me a year to have oversight and to be available to them. If they got hurt, they would be able to come to me. I'd be able to um, comfort them. I'd be able to talk to them about the lessons that they learned. So that is not promoting sin. It's not approving of sin. It's not encouraging sin, but it is saying, let me have some relationship with my soon to be adult child and be part of their life rather than just no, 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 no. And then yeah. they go off the cliff on their own. So you think it could, because this, again, this transfers to, this is just good parenting advice. <laughs> again, a straight Christian kid who really wants to go on a date or or date a non-Christian would be a very similar situation. Like, like this, if this, this relationship is, is not something we would be excited about or even approve of, but you're saying you, a parent could do that and yet still let the child kind of like pursue something that you're not excited about, but you're giving them the freedom to make that decision because, and again, if they're like 13, maybe that's different. Okay. But you're talking yes. 16, 17 in a year yeah. or two, a couple months that they're going to be in the realm of outside your authority, there's, you know, maybe parents would disagree with that. I, I do think that once your kid is, you know, adult out of the house, then, you, well, I, as, as one parent coach, I just recently heard said, you know, you move from like, you know, when you're, when your kid's five to 12, you're a cop. When they're 13 to 17, you're, you're a coach. After 18, you're a consultant. 
<laughs> you're kind of available for when which, they, you know, which you might not get hired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might not. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that. Because we we've thought about that, like, and we've gone back and forth on like when do we just you know they're still under our roof, you know, top down authority, but then also like we do want them to be able to make not wise decisions while they're under our roof, so we can help navigate when they, you know, make choices that we're like, yeah. We don't think that was the best choice, but we will let you make that. And so we're, yes. and we're actually still here under the roof to guide you through when you're navigating that. Bill, this is hard. Apparently, <laughs> it I, is hard because we've made the mistake on both ends. Yes. Where we're too lenient. And also, I'm like, what mm-hmm. is going on? And I, 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 I feel like I should. How come I'm not parenting my kid better? And then the other side of like parenting too much, you're know, like <laughs> just way too much, like dictating how they're supposed to live. And it's just that balance is so hard and there's fallout on either side. And anyway, one thing my dad said, uh, I'm seven years old. So this is going back to when I was like probably 17 and my dad, he didn't say yes or no. He said, son, you're going to have to learn to live your life before God, knowing that you're responsible only to him because we're past the point of you being accountable to me. I mean, Ooh, it, that was a very uh, factual truth. It was probably hard for him to say that and hard for him to let go. It was very true, but also it kind of infused in me. Oh my gosh, I have to live my life before God, not before my dad. So it was almost like a growing up moment for me that all these years later, I remember that. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. I, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um <clears throat> this is something I get a lot from parents and it has to do kind of with the intersection of parental care and um, our sort of socio-political moment where, you know, you have obviously a a massive rise in in teenagers identifying as LGBTQ. And that raises questions you have in certain areas of the country, especially like the school system might be so radically uh, affirming um, and parents are like, what do we do? Are my, you know, third graders being taught this, 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 you know, what's your advice to parents that are, maybe they do have maybe some legitimate, maybe fear or deep concerns about kind of the world out there and where this conversation is and how their kid might be wrapped up into that. And also maybe tempering that with, with not letting, I don't know, you probably know where I'm going with this, but like, how to also care for your kid, not out of fear of kind of the out there, but like actually parenting them well. Yeah. I, I, first of all, we know 30% of kids are not trans or gender minorities. Uh, we, we know that scientifically it's simply not true. Uh, we do know though that every next generation of youth has a certain ideology, um, that they hold to. So like there, there are, aren't many hippies in the world today, but at a certain time, you know, like there, there were a lot of hippies, you know, and I'm not equating gender uh, identity to something like being a hippie or something like that. But all I'm saying is that every next generation tends to scare the heck out of their parents. Okay. And like, Whoa, will the gospel survive this generation? I guarantee you, God is not done yet in this next generation. And they have ideologies that will be shaped over time. And so one of the biggest principles here I think about is long-term, the gospel will have power 
over this next generation of kids. Why? Because God will not abandon them. He will not forget about them. And his word still has power in this world. So in the midst of all this complexity and all the controversy around this, I, I need to ground myself not to get pulled into that controversy that uh, I need to be prepared to engage the next child one-on-one right here, right now, based on that child's self-report and not in the loud background of all this cultural moment with 400 and something, you know, uh, bills being considered around the country. By the way, many of those bills, I would probably be supportive of uh, or supportive of elements of them. Um, One of the things that I'd be most supportive of is that there should not be, in order to take care of a minority people group, there should not be an education platform that suddenly adults are telling first graders or third graders who they are or who they can be in their sexuality or their gender identity. So anything in a bill that's trying to just say, you know, early education is about education. I'd be very, very supportive of things like that. Um, But I can't, I cannot allow I'm a human too. I get frustrated by how fast this world is moving and some of the things that are happening in on the extremes on both sides, by the way. But I get upset by that. But in my care of LGBT kids and their parents, I have to be present right here, right now. This is about the opportunity to share the presence of Christ with a human being, a young person, and their mom and dad, and to make the gospel have more power in their family. So that's my focus all the time. If Theology Nara has blessed you or challenged you or encouraged you on some level, then I would like to invite you to consider supporting the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to various kinds of premium content like monthly Q&A podcasts, the ability to ask me questions and dialogue with other Patreon supporters. Uh, Gold level supporters are able to participate in monthly Zoom chats where we talk about uh, pretty much everything. Those chats can get pretty wild sometimes, and I absolutely love it. So join the uh, Theology and Rock community by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Theology and Rock. I feel like you probably keep up on the political stuff definitely more, more than I do. Um, and this is kind of like, I guess this isn't that important of a question. I just, I have several people have asked me about the some of the stuff in Florida in particular, like the so-called don't say gay bill, which I don't think says that but that's how it's been kind of framed. Do you have any thoughts on some of the, uh, the I know it's so polarized and misrepresented yeah. and just, you know, but I just think that when we get to the point of like either, I think mandates on either side are really potentially very impactful. Like it, 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 if you say, like a mandate you must use a name and pronoun okay well you know like that doesn't leave room for a child that's just socially exploring you know and doesn't really need that and then if you make a law that says pronouns and uh you know and names are never permitted you know well then you're actually potentially cutting off creating safety in a school system for a teacher that might 
feel like it's very important to be able to use a name and pronoun. So these these binary mandates that either cut one way, you must do this, or you can never do this. I just really have a problem with yeah. uh, things like that. I mean, kids that really are gender minorities, they really do need our care. They really do need mm -hmm. us to be thoughtful about how we're engaging them. And I'd rather there be freedom in how to do that rather than these yeah. extreme mandates one way or the other. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I think just it, it gets so politicized. And you know that like when you have political parties that are just will do anything to kind of wield power and assert their viewpoints and and maybe some of their viewpoints aren't even that bad. Some are bad or whatever. But just this polarization yeah. or everything, it just it just makes it just stirs up so much fear and anger. And when yeah. that trickles down into the church, it's like, we can't be led. Like we can't be, that can't be like our, our, our starting point. You know, we're scared. We're angry at anybody on the other side. And so much of that is just stirred up by media propaganda and kind of extreme voices being platformed on each side. And, um, Oh, in 2020, we started seeing the division rise, uh, mm -hmm. by 2022, it was peaking, but it's kind of like, first of all, this, this conservative rising that we're seeing right now, it's um, it's almost undefinable. Uh, it, it's not like you can point back to a source. Uh, it ten, it seems to be operating in a secular realm. But in 2023, we've now started to see that like show up in the church. Um, so to be clear, in Pashtashev, I don't know a single pastor who would want to be like trying to foment, uh, let's say, um, hatred toward trans people, you know, all the pastors we engage, I know all the pastors you engage, they're asking, how can we share the love of Christ yeah. with people, right? But then again, we just have a $60,000 church partner that just dropped us because we care for people who identify as gay Christian. <laughs> so all of a sudden it is here in the church. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and so my concern is the trajectory in the coming years is the our pastors going to guard the church to make sure that the gospel is reigning high in the midst of this ever-changing culture? Or is there going to be more of the church that's now starting to collapse into this unthoughtful posture, you know, of engaging people? So um, I don't think yeah. that's going to happen, but I but I mean losing a sixty thousand dollar church partner. Like th that speaks to some, it, it's yeah. a data point to consider. Yeah, no, totally. What do you uh, say? I've gotten this question quite a bit. Parents that um, there was one particular church I was at in a, in a really progressive city and they happened to not have any like Christian school options. And they said the entire school district was, you know, the way they would describe how it was, I would say pushing an agenda. I hate, I don't like that language, but the way they described it, multiple parents, I'm like, that would fit that description, you know, it's like just very, very far left, very aggressive um, promotion of certain sexuality and gender ideologies that that would be not not even like classically liberal or left leaning, but just very, very radical. And they, they were like, what do we what do we do? Like, we can't afford to homeschool. We have, you know, working two jobs or whatever. Sure. And do we just leave them in there? And my, I guess my re only response was like. What, what my response is like, number one, the church and parents, we need to be on the front lines of, you know, discipling our, our kids, our people in a holistic Christian view of, of sex, gen gender, singleness, sexuality. And I say holistic, meaning, you know, 
caring for uh, gender minorities and 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 you know extending kindness to our enemies and and so on and so forth. Like not just promoting a traditional view of marriage, period, but like like situate that in the gospel story as a whole. And I also say, I mean, they always say, well, should we go and like what should we do about the school system? And I don't know how I, I this is so far beyond my pay grade. The only advice I maybe kind of suggest with a very big open hand is. I mean, if you have opportunity to maybe speak into that, maybe you have the ear of some people in this school, like, yeah, I think you can, you can do that. Um, but those systems are so used to Christians coming in with some right-wing political agenda, yelling and screaming and being very homophobic and transphobic, like actually that if you're a Christian coming in with your ideas, just know that you need to deconstruct some of those kind of assumptions that Chris, the, of, 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 of the manner in which you're going to go about raising your concerns beyond, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And do you have anything further? I mean, I, I just, I don't, yep. I don't know what to do in that situation. I, I think if I'm going to live in that setting that I, I, there's a certain aspect that I have to accept that I'm in that setting. Um, like for example, we raised our kids in Boston yeah, and, um, so we just taught our children, look, we're going to believe what we believe in our own home and in our own hearts. And we're going to hold tight to that in our effort to honor God and like unto it, we're not going to inflict our beliefs uh, on in certain areas upon all of our friends. Like we're going to be an inclusive family. We're going to invite our friends over. We're going to um, be generous in blessing them. Uh, if they're LGBT, we're going to accept them, love them, care for them, use their name, pronoun. Uh, we're going to be very loving family so that our witness of the gospel of Christ can actually connect to people. So with school administrators, I would uh, forgive me if this sounds like kind of like giving up, but I would never think I even have the power okay. to even convince them because the ideology that they may hold to is so yeah. rooted. So I'd rather them be shocked by my willingness as a Christian to engage rather than, let's say, trying to earn trust only to confront. So I'd like them now I'm in this full time. So I've actually had rubber meets the road experience of like caring for kids that are suicidal, being aware of what kids uh, go through uh, growing up LGBT. So I could bring some of those things to the table with some of the administrators in our school children's school system. And then sometimes I could just drop a, a question, you know, like, of course, we want to make sure that we're not telling kids that they must be, you know, uh, gender minorities if they're not. And I've never met an administrator that did not agree with that statement. Mm. Like I've had many very liberal people say, yeah, we need to make sure that we're not like so over caring for minority kids that we actually inflict that upon mm. other kids as a mandate. You must be part of this community. I said, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Because there are cisgender kids in the world. In fact, most kids are cisgender. So they should be honored in their identity and the discovery of their story as well, rather than having that deconstructed constantly before them. They should be encouraged in who they are. The key is protecting minority kids from mistreatment. Mm -hmm. But protecting minority kids does not require mistreatment of majority yeah. kids.
do you think I, I know again, and we can we can leave politics here in a second, but um <laughs> you know that this and this might go back into the kind of polarization and the rhetoric and everything, but like this kind of fear among people on the right of like, are their kids being groomed? The whole grooming conversation. Like, is there any legitimacy to that? Is that completely um, made up? Uh, is it a fear tactic or is there some legitimacy? Is it going on, but on much lower levels than what you would see? And then when I say grooming, I mean, yes, yeah, certain viewpoints um, being presented in such a way that would, um, maybe convince a kid that they are a sexual gender minority when they may not actually be, um, it could be kind of more subtle or it can be really like aggressive. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Here's a real life story. Um, sixth grader wrote a, um, a, a report in class about a struggle with body image and the teacher took a very proactive uh, response to that report, talking to the child privately and telling them, have you considered the possibility that you might be trans or a gender minority? Well, the kid had not self-reported anything about gender identity. It was about body image it, and it was about self-esteem and it was about gaining a victory over mm -hmm. an aspect of body image. So why on earth is an adult suddenly discussing mm -hmm. gender identity with this kid? Okay, do I think that teacher was intending to care? Yeah, probably. But the way they did it, did it come across as kind of like indoctrination? Yes, it absolutely did. So like when we tell parent, when we tell adults, don't, you know, don't tell a kid's story for them. That isn't just a message to youth pastors or to parents of LGBT kids. It's a it's a message to all adults. Mm -hmm. Do not predetermine what a yeah. kid's story must be or might be. Engage them based on the self-report of their life. If they're not talking about sexuality or gender identity, why are we infusing that into the conversation? Uh, that's inappropriate. So I believe that there is absolutely an aspect of grooming that's occurring. Do I think the intention is to protect minority kids? Yes, I do. Yeah. But do I think it goes too far in many cases? Yes, I think it goes way too far. That's that's helpful. So kind of the un, is almost unintentional, for the most part, unintentional. Like they, they might not realize, because they might just be parroting kind of stuff they're hearing and, and yeah. viewpoints. I mean, I'm sure you, you know, half the time when, when I'm talking to people about, especially gender, half the time I hear them talk, I'm like, I don't, do you even know what you're talking about? Like they use words in all these inconsistent ways. Yeah. And they're probably just relaying kind of what they're hearing their authorities say, you know, um, I, I get, I get concerned with uh, kids that would be classified as just gender non-conforming, yes. which is probably 30%, you know, yes. uh, girls who are not super feminine and boys who are not super masculine. And, and I do think that again, may, may, you know, benefit of the doubt, maybe it's uh, unintentional, but convincing that kid that they, again, like you said, might be, trans again they, they might even like yeah over interpreting every gender non-conforming behavior as uh, trans and that might lead down to okay well, then here's the what the medical professionals say is the best steps to avoid suicidality and you get down into you know social transition hormonal transition and you know i i think that the numbers of that aren't as high as maybe some people on the right make it out to be but it is it does i i have enough stories you know where it's like Gosh, did this? I saw this process happening, and it's really, it's really sad. But um, the other thing is, like, I'm more concerned about what we don't know scientifically than what we do know. 
For example, this rate of identification, even the number of kids that are experiencing what we would accurately describe as gender dysphoria, a spectrum of gender dysphoria. Okay, that is becoming a much wider experience. We may find out 30 years from now that plastics in our our environment has played a role in things. So like the reason I want right treatment of gender minority youth or kids with gender dysphoria, the reason I want us to so love them, so care for them, so protect them Mm -hmm. is because like literally we may learn one day that we were torturing kids by telling them, you know, well, what you're experiencing is not true. You know, it's not real. We've met parents who moved away, even moved out into the country. And literally within months, their child's gender dysphoria is gone. Yeah. But in the moment of being where they were, where that child experienced gender dysphoria, there's no way to tell that kid what you're feeling is not real or what you're feeling. If we didn't live here, you wouldn't be feeling it. Therefore it's not, uh, it's not real. No, it was very real to the Mm. point of creating suicidality. So the idea is no matter what this cause is, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the right treatment of kids has to be our top focus always. That's so good. And, and, you know, yeah, when people say, well, you know, there's so much like social influence or social contagion, I don't, I don't love that, that word, but, um, you know, a lot of these kids that identify as something other than, you know, their biological sex, they're, it's all social influence or largely social influence. And I guess it's it, kind of to your point, like, even if, um, some cases of gender dysphoria does have, some element of social causation that doesn't mean it's not real for people That's to right. say if it's socially caused therefore it's not real well no people thinks i mean suicidality has a social influence aspect you have uh, eating disorders and and self harm have social that doesn't mean they're not yes. real so yeah. whatever the cause let's not pretend like the kid isn't actually experiencing some real distress one of my fears is that um especially with teenage girls because you mentioned like body dysmorphia or body image issues which isn't the same as gender dysphoria but it can be i think diagnosed that way i mean i don't know i don't know too many teenage girls or you talk to older women today that they said man going through puberty was amazing when i first started getting my period that was great when my breast developed and now you know, men are no longer looking at my eyes or looking at my body. I that really enjoyed that the experience. Like there, there is a lot of just really difficulties that especially females go through that has to do with their female body. But I think there's so much just that's just kind of a natural part. Unfortunately, I mean, there's lots of sin involved in you know, the difficulties and stuff too from society. But like, I, I do fear that in some cases, any kind of distress over their female body. It could be overinterpreted too quickly by non-experts or sometimes by experts as gender dysphoria. Um, but again, I, I don't know how many, I don't have numbers or data on this. It's just more anecdotal when I hear stories, yeah. and, you know, I well, you hear a lot from older women. They were like, if I was a teenager today, I totally would have identified as trans or non-binary, you know, because of the categories that are available. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, here's my, to come full circle, Bill. And I think, I think you'll agree. Like, a lot of these are legitimate concerns. I get concerned when they stifle 
pastoral care, when they provoke anger and fear uh, rather than de- a deep heart for people, for whatever reason, are really, really wrestling with things in life. Mental health issues are obviously off the chart, anxiety, suicidality, depression, and like whatever the cause, we need to be deeply concerned about walking with with this next generation. Yeah, I, I feel it very deeply as well. We also have the... Um, crossover or the correlation of kids who have Asperger's or mm-hmm. they're on the spectrum uh, and, 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 and they are uh, reporting what they feel as gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, but research can't differentiate between the anxiety, the inner pain that's generated by Asperger's. What's the other one? <laughs> I'm, my mind is just blank. Autism? For- Autism, Autism yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the anxiety, the social frustration of being on the spectrum of autism versus gender dysphoria. It's very hard to separate those things. So we have a lot more kids reporting gender dysphoria. We need to take it seriously. Un- underneath it may be autism that is the source of that. So, but again, right treatment of kids means engaging what they're self-reporting rather than dismissing it. Yeah, that's good. But let's come yeah. back to just parent parenting LGBT kids in general. I know you just have a few more minutes here, but um, what are some other I mean things you've learned over that you've been doing this for so long, Bill? You have so much experience. I, yeah. Um, what are some other kind of big picture things you would tell parents? We talked about, you know, when a, when a child comes out, how to react and what to do when you didn't react well. What are some other big things that you would love the big picture advice uh, you can give? I'd say um, in fifth edition, we we restructured the book to be across an entire lifetime. So even talking about elder care, a care of elderly LGBT folks. And over and over again, it it becomes an issue of right treatment at every stage. So like if your child has come out, you need to be very present in their story, listening, asking, honoring questions, uh, making sure that there's safety, security in the home, that there's no question about love or togetherness. Um, And that way your child can actually talk to you about what they're experiencing rather than hiding it from you. Uh, or growing up in your home fearing that at any moment they might be rejected or asked to leave. Then as your child gets older, um, it doesn't mean they'll always identify as LGBT. They, You may have a trans kid that's now 24 and cisgender. <laughs> and because they were trans, they thought they might be gay or pansexual. And all of a sudden, they're cisgender and, um, and dating uh, someone of the opposite sex. So, you know, like keeping in mind this long-term trajectory. Uh, you don't want to, you know, just hold on to one testimony and say, my daughter's story will be like this. You know, uh, that's my only hope. No, my hope is in the gospel. My hope is in the power of God. My Jesus died for my child. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to remember, God will not forget my child. And this is going to play out in their life over the long term, potentially. So I'm going to do everything I can in the here and now to set up a positive relationship over the long term. Okay. So as they, let's say they were 26, and they decided to get married, you know, uh, obviously be there on the wedding day, it doesn't mean you have to approve or agree with, but be there. Why? Because you want to have a future with your child 
And if they have kids, you want to be a grandparent that is trusted in your children's lives where they know we can leave our kids with our parents and they'll be loved well. And you can share the love of Jesus with your grandchildren, you know, welcome a a gay spouse of your child into your family as a family member, uh, rather than seeing them as an outsider, you know, with inheritance, um, treat your kids fairly. You know, uh, if you're going to split all that you have and split it among all your children, then don't, alter that just because your kid is married to someone of the same sex. So across a lifetime, it's uh, keeping your beliefs and faithfully honoring God in what you believe. Oh, by the way, and how you live your life, because all of us are struggling with a lot of sin in our life. Uh, uh, Without the blood of Jesus, none of us have a leg to stand on before a holy God. So we need to be reminded of our own sinfulness and our own need for grace. Well, our children need that too. So I think if we have that humble posture of knowing our own need for grace and that we cannot satisfy God because we are not holy ourselves, it will give us the proper posture for extending the gospel to our LGBT uh, loved ones at every stage of their life, no matter what. That's helpful. I want to ask you, you you mentioned several identities, pansexual, cisgender, trans, non-binary, any advice to parents on how to think through those identities? Cause I know some, some, some identities can become overwhelming. Like what's the newest addition now? And, or their parents could kind of give an eye roll, you know, to identities. How do you counsel parents to respond when your child uses a term that might be familiar or might not be familiar? I, and by the way, you know, like, because every next generation is different, 20 years of experience doesn't mean that I never, you know, hear something new or, you know, or something that maybe I'm not so comfortable with or what have you. So I'm always, oh, wow, Jeremy, Thank you for sharing with me a bit about your identity. I'd love to hear more. What does that mean to you? So it's uh, facial expressions engaged, eye contact maintained. I'm not looking away. I'm not looking down. I don't have evangelical freeze face. I'm fully (laughs) engaging. And I'm asking honoring questions that invite Jeremy to share more. Jeremy is used to telling his story and people shutting down not being curious to ask anything else. So by asking and honoring question and expressing curiosity, it allows Jeremy to share what that uh, means uh, to to him or to they and there, whatever, you know. So I just think maintaining that uh, posture of always having an honoring, curious, objectively stated question that allows someone to further share Mm -hmm. what the identity means to them is the starting point. And then I might go deeper from there. Like, well, what does that feel like to you on the inside? You know, how does that impact how you experience like security or safety? If you Mm -hmm. were thinking about dating someone. So instead of Hmm. asking all these questions, how could you possibly feel that, you know, or that's not real. I'd rather keep learning something new that comes from a self-report from my child or the young person I'm caring for, because every word that that kid shares is an opportunity for me to potentially learn a new way of asking a deeper question 
that then gets to a deeper question. Uh, in one conversation with one of the Jeremy's of the world, we went so deep into it. And at the end, he just said, oh, well, I really don't know what it's about, but I'm just kind of like discovering who I am. Mm-hmm. Ah, that was a very wow. honest, if you think about it, it was a confession. Mm-hmm. It was a confession that would not have been safe for him to make if I was coming at him from a confrontational or a doubtful perspective, but because we dove into it and I was curious, it actually allowed him to say, even I don't fully understand it. Maybe he's just a straight kid. Who's just developing, you know, something like that. So that's a huge uh, blessing Mm -hmm. of that kind of engagement. I often say with the identities, my tagline is just don't, don't freak out. Um, Identities are a, a kid's, if we're talking about teenagers, you know, a teenager's attempt to name an experience that might be very confusing, might be new, might might be complex, might be unnameable. You know, like it might might be something they're not sure what to do, and they they're searching for some kind of term to name this experience that might be temporary, it might be long lasting, um, and just so just leave it at that. It's not. I think parents sometimes they think this is some kind of ontological separate category of humanity. Like I thought my kid was a human male and now there's some other, it's like, (laughs) yeah, males and females and intersex persons have a wide range of different experiences. That doesn't mean there's some other kind of separate category of humanity necessarily. Not, I mean, (laughs) period. The freak out that I hear some parents when they're, you know, they're my 12 year old said she's pansexual and they're just, they're just like, they just have, they're like, their life is just almost like, I'm like, slow down. Like this is, yeah. If you anyway. think about it in development, probably a lot of us are pansexual <laughs> at 12, you know, because yeah. we're experiencing, even as a guy, like I remember feeling all kinds of warm, fuzzy feeling around my guy friends, yeah. just because we had what I yeah. later would understand to be camaraderie. Huh. But at that time it was so warm, fuzzy that it, it felt like a love in a sense, you know, it wasn't that I necessarily wanted to date them, but it did feel like it was a love. And I mean, I think this is how straight boys sometimes do things together because they get so close that they're a bit curious, something like that. It doesn't mean they're necessarily gay, but so what it means is that in development, we can be feeling a lot of feelings and and all of us have gone through that. I've met 80-year-old men who say that they played with another boy when they were 14, yeah. you know, because they got curious about what each other looked like. And that didn't make them gay. But so this idea that this generation is somehow different than the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in some <laughs> aspects, yes. But in many aspects, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. I read a book a while back called... Uh... Well, it, it, yeah, a little provocative title, Sex Between Straight White Men or something like that. <laughs> and it talked about these oh, throughout the 20th century. Um, they talked about like, I didn't realize this, but like biker gangs with men, they'll engage in sexual activity and it's not an expression of an orient, same-sex orientation. Uh, military, college frats and everything, some hazing. And I mean, this, it's a pretty, I mean, I, I don't, it's a pretty R-rated book, but I mean, and it was by, you know, a social theorist that's wanted to put, you know, sexuality in more of a social construct to kind of show that like, hey, pe- humans do all kinds of wild stuff, you know. Um, but, th- but there is some, I don't know. Yeah, there is some truth to that, especially teenagers. I mean, golly. Um, 
and especially like I mean I, I don't I don't want to be two men here talking about female sexuality for too long, but <laughs> we, we haven't engaged other people of the opposite sex and and yeah, female sexuality, especially as a teenager, can be extremely complex and and there's fluidity there and and there's you know, interpreting and maybe an emotional response as a sexual response. You know, you might feel a, an emotional spike when you see a a beautiful other teenage girl whose body might be more developed. You might be more jealous of her body and you feel this emotional like draw and you might be forced or encouraged to interpret that emotional spike as a sexual attraction, you know, or super confusing, man. I don't envy teenagers growing up in um, the world today. Last question, Bill, and then I'll let you go. Advice to parents. When do we talk theology? When do we say, all right, at the end of the day, here's what God thinks about these things? At both a church level and a family level, you know, like I think silence is not the answer. <laughs> okay. Um, and there, there's churches that decided to be kind by going silent, and huh. it only caused problems. In fact, okay. we've got several churches we're working with that literally have experienced blowups because of the lack of clarity. Uh, and I'd say the same thing could happen in families. Like if we never discussed this in this world we live in, our kids could assume that uh, like everyone is affirming or will be, you know, and um, and then they might be shocked later on to find out that we're not. So I don't think we need to necessarily think uh, think about this through the framework of that. Oh, we have to pre-educate our kids in first grade or third grade. You know, a conversation doesn't have to always happen. A conversation could come uh, after a child's self-report about them being curious or questioning about their own sexuality or gender. A conversation could happen uh, when a family member comes out and then that requires some explanation. Uh, it also could be a planned family conversation. So in our household, what we said is, all right, we're not going to introduce things to our kids before their readiness because we just want them to be kids and enjoy life and, you know, like going outside and playing and enjoying time with their friends and growing in their faith. Uh, but if they don't ask the question by age 10, then we will have a planned family conversation. Okay. Well, both of our kids came to us separately at age nine and said, hey, mom and dad, did you know that there's like gay kids in the world? And I'm like, yeah, I know there's gay kids in the world, <laughs> you know? And and I said, son, what what is what does gay mean? He said, it's when two boys kiss. I'm like, okay, uh, you mean it's like boys like each other? Yeah. And I was like, so, but instead of going through a Leviticus or a Romans one kind of, <laughs> you know, conversation, I said, well, what do you think about that? And he said, dad, I don't think it's right. Hmm. I said, really? What makes you think it's not right? He said, well, I think it's not right because I don't think God made it to be that way. Wow. Okay. By asking him rather than telling him, it was amazing because I said, son, did you know that exactly what you were, I know you love your friends and all of that, but exactly what you believe in your own heart without me ever telling you, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Hmm. Um, so in other words, it's like God has already put his word in you without me even teaching specifically on that. And you're able to discern in your own heart, what would God find to be uh, okay? What would God find to be sinful? So it's very important you understand 
that what you're reporting you believe, it it literally is God guiding you in growing your faith in following him in your own life. Uh, and now what are we going to do in regards to our gay friends? Uh, we're going to love them? Uh, yeah, why, dad? Uh, or why, son? Why would we do that? Because God wants us to love everyone? Yes, because even if we were super holy, but then suddenly we mistreated our friends, we wouldn't just fail to be loving. We would be unholy because it is unholy people who mistreat others that are different than them. Bill, that's a great word to end on. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and, and yeah, it's just so, so good. Um, can you, uh, where, where can people find your work? Give us some websites and resources. Sure. PostureShift.com or GuidingFamilies.com. Uh, they'll both have a resource tab that you can get to Guiding Families 5th edition. And then we have a, a September uh, online mm-hmm. event for parents. Uh, just a quick two-hour Zoom event to connect parents to parents. Uh, we don't do a lot of teaching. A lot of things that parents ask for is we want to be connected to other parents who are going through what we're going through. So we just offer that quarterly platform for parents to connect to okay. each other. And I know you all actually have something coming up this fall for parents as well. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a bunch of webinars on our website, yeah. centerforfaith.com. Um yeah, it's so it's so good doing this ministry, knowing that people like out like you are out there as well. Otherwise it'd feel very very lonely. So yeah, thank you so much for your faithfulness, your steadfastness. I can't believe you've been doing this for all these years and you're still you're still uh, living and breathing because it's, it's not easy work that you're doing. Let me just say uh, thanks to our team, uh, Josh, Leslie, Paul, Kong. Uh, like we are a team and we do the ministry together as a team and I'm not going to be around forever. So we're trying to build a team that can take this forward uh, into the future. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.